If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 535. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This is B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And as I've said this week already, McClanahan Academy classes are never out of stock. So if you want a good gift for Christmas, and I've got some really good sales coming up, you're going to want to hop on over there, get those things, get, get 10, get 20, buy these classes. You get them forever. That's the thing about McClanahan Academy. It's so great. You get the class, and then you can download it. You keep it forever. It's yours. You can listen to it over and over again. You've got, uh, I'll give you documents or PowerPoints, lecture notes. It's a great gift if you like this show. And I've got classes on all kinds of things. I've got U.S. history survey courses. I've got classes on the war and reconstruction. I've got classes on the Constitution. I've got classes on uh, Southern intellectual and cultural history. I've got just stuff for everybody. Class on secession, class on the Declaration, class on Hamilton, class on the Founding Fathers, class on... Uh, the presidency. I mean, there's so much stuff there that you can get and more in 2022. Now, I've done my last class, 26 Speeches That Changed America for this year, which is an awesome class, by the way. And there's more coming in 2022. So when you're a, me- when you're a member, free of charge, you get the notices when new stuff comes out. Also, you can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Click on the support tab. You can support the show that way financially or go to anchor.fm and support the show that way. Or you can share it around on social media and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. That does help get people listening to the show. And we've got another another great uh, topic for today. And this actually bridges off of something I did not long ago where I did a podcast on the Constitution as a neutral document when it comes to slavery. Now, I can make an argument it's a pro-slavery document. I can make an argument it's an anti-slavery document. Heck, Lysander Spooner made an argument it was an anti-slavery document. Frederick Douglass made an argument it's an anti-slavery document. On the other hand, you had William Lloyd Garrison making an argument it's a pro-slavery document. I think that it's actually neutral. The language essentially is neutral. The Constitution itself is not pro-slavery or anti-slavery. The states determined all of this. Now, it does have the Fugitive Slave Clause, but the term slave is never used. It does allow for the importation of such persons, but the word slave is never used. In fact, you could say that was more of a, of a clause about immigration than anything else. And that's what people are doing now. But uh, I've said, you know, the Constitution is pretty clear on this. I mean, it's, it's neutral. It was designed to allow the states to deal with the issue as they saw fit. 
Now, one thing, it doesn't even bring up what the Congress can do with slavery and the territories. This is a major constitutional question. It was the question on slavery, politically, what to do about it. This is what led, essentially, to the breakup of the Union. It wasn't a moral question of slavery. There were people that defended it in moral terms. There were people that opposed it in moral terms. But that was the extremes on each side. Most Americans just didn't really... I mean, Southerners, of course, were around on a regular basis, but most Northerners really didn't care that much about it. If they were anti-slavery, they were more in line with Lincoln's position on it, which was blacks are inferior, but they should be free. So it was a race-based opposition to slavery. They just didn't want slavery within their midst. They didn't want free blacks within their midst. They didn't want them around. Whereas Southerners... Of course, we're also racist. They, and how we define the term today, they believed in racial superiority of white people, but they also lived around slaves, and there was a lot more of a of an integration of society than people realize in the South. And historians have pointed this out. You didn't really get hardcore segregation of the South until really the 1880s and 90s, 30 years after the war is over. Whereas Jim Crow, well, you see the first use of Jim Crow in Massachusetts and Connecticut. In the 1850s, they were segregating rail cars. So who is the real progenitor of segregation in America? Well, it certainly, it certainly isn't the South. I mean, you can't really have segregation when black people have to go and do a lot of things for people. I mean, yeah, I mean, of course, we had segregation after the war. But even there, uh, you still had a lot of integration. It just didn't, it wasn't in public facilities and things like that. But the everyday interaction between blacks and whites was constant in the South. Constant. Whereas you had very little of it in the North or in the Midwest. The Republican Party called itself the white man's party. I mean, this is, this is what they said. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it was about opposition to black Americans in general that drove that party. So when you look at this, though, I mean, this was the big issue Slavery extension. How were we going to extend? Were we going to extend slavery? Were we not going to extend slavery? What were we going to do with it? That became the issue, and it was a political issue because in, in that was tied political power. If you have more southern states, well, you have more opposition to central banking, tariffs, federally funded internal improvements. Even though Calhoun at one point was saying, hey, wait a second here, we want to keep the West in line with this. These are good farmers, just like us. But they really want these internal improvements, so maybe we should. We should support those things. That was something certainly that uh, Calhoun was willing to discuss. In fact, Calhoun authored the bonus bill, which had spent money. I mean, uh, that would have been uh, created by the chartering of the uh, Second Bank of the United States. It would have created a revenue tariff. It would have spent money on uh, certain improvements. I mean, this was something that, um, you know, you could say that Calhoun was inconsistent. In fact, the old Republicans... If there's a great book on this faction, The Quids, The Old Republicans by Norman Rizjord. It's just one of the best books on early American history, if you want to get that. The Old Republicans, Norman Rizjord. Uh, I mean, look, they didn't, they, were, they didn't think Calhoun was purist enough. They didn't trust him. So you had that. But I want to talk about this piece Richard Kreitner, uh, that Richard Kreitner wrote for, I think it's, he wrote it for The Nation, I believe. Uh, yeah, thenation.com. Richard Kreitner wrote a book entitled Break It Up, and he is a leftist. I mean, Richard Kreitner is far left. He loves the left. He's woke. He's all of that. 
But he believes in left secession because he doesn't think the United States is ever going to be left enough. It's never going to go far left enough. So he, he wants out. Maybe the United States would be better off to, to break it up. It's the title of the book. And he brings up all these different secession movements in America. He misses some, but he brings up, he, he points out some, some good ones. And so I, I think Kreitner's an interesting fellow. I think he's an interesting fellow. Uh, do I agree with him? No. On most things, not. I, I agree with him on secession, but not on anything else. But he wrote this piece about a new book by James Oakes. You can go to, if you go to your Barnes & Noble, it's going to be new releases, James Oakes. And it's about the Constitution. And the book is The Crooked Path to Abolition. And James Oakes, who is, uh, I mean, he is a prominent, quote-unquote, Civil War historian. He wrote a biography of Abraham Lincoln. He is one of these guys that believes in the righteous cause myth. I mean, this is what this book is all about the righteous cause myth, and he has perpetrated the belief that Lincoln was interested in freeing slavery right from the beginning of the war. In fact, that's what drove the war, was an interest in ending slavery, even though you, Michael Holt has taken him to task. I mean, these two would battle over this. I mean, these are some of the big names in 19th century American history, or historiography, I should say. Michael Holt's book on the original 13th Amendment, James Oakes doesn't like it because Holt essentially says, well, Lincoln was in favor of keeping slavery in the South and that the, the Corwin Amendment should have been the Lincoln Amendment. I mean, this is, this is his position. James Oakes doesn't like that because that's tearing down his hero, Abraham Lincoln. But in this book, as Kreitner says, James Oakes argues that the Constitution was an anti-slavery document. It was anti-slavery. And this would be in line with Frederick Douglass. It would be in line with Lysander Spooner. And when I wrote that piece on, I said, the Constitution's neutral, I had a, a, some guy from the William Garrison, some libertarian from the William Garrison Foundation or think tank or something, write a piece, critical of my piece. Uh, and it was picked up in lots of different places that I was, it was all pro-slavery. And of course, he misquoted me and he said something in there that doesn't, that he then later said he didn't. And when I, when I questioned him on it, um, I didn't say that. So then I quoted it back to him, and then he didn't say anything else. So, I mean, th the piece was stupid. But regardless, uh, you have this position that the Constitution was anti-slavery. So I'm sure this guy that wrote this thing in opposite to calling it pro-slavery is just in, you know, in a fit of rage over this. But what I want to focus on is the first part of this, because I, I think that he gets into the 1619 project and uh, he brings up this debate. I mean, this is actually an interesting piece for historiography. So Kreitner says, one of the longest running debates in U.S. history concerns the role of the Constitution in enabling or limiting social change. Was the 1787 charter as averred by its framers, successive waves of establishment and insurgent politicians and best-selling historians, the glorious and indispensable guarantor of self-government? Or was it, as anti-federalists, abolitionists, and radical historians have argued, a tool for the propertied and powerful to hold on to their privileges and to sustain an ongoing counter-revolutionary -revol coup, if I could speak today? Underneath these questions are even larger ones. Is U.S. history a story of progress, of slow but steady emancipation, 
or is it a more difficult, often depressing one of limited victories followed by resurgent exploitation? So this is written like a leftist, right? Uh, but certainly these are these are some. I mean, I think he points out the dichotomy in American politics today. Now he gets the anti-federalists wrong. Most of those who oppose the Constitution, there was some question of financial interests and other things. They did talk about that. But the real opposition came from power. Came from power and what they were going to do with it. And more importantly, how much power they were going to put in the center. And I think this is where almost everybody misses the original argument against the Constitution. They miss it. They don't get it. They don't get it because they can't see it. They can't see it because they're letting their own ideology color how they view the document and how they view this debate over the, over the Constitution. In fact, even Pauline Meyer, who wrote a book entitled Ratification, thick book on this period of time, misses it. She misses it. It's really disappointing because it's all right there. If you start reading the debates, you see, wait a second here. These are the things that they're really talking about. It's why I have my originalist papers class at McClanahan Academy because this was the key argument. It wasn't about propertyed people. It wasn't about you know economics. Of course, again, they talked about some of this. People are going to make some money on this document. In reality, what it was about was power. Who was going to have the power and was it going to be too much? In recent years, this debate has often circled around the question of whether the Constitution was for or against slavery. Did it perpetuate bondage or awful tools for, for its abolition? In 2015, David Waldstricher and Sean Valence, representing these respective positions, tangled over the matter in The Atlantic and The New York Times. Valence's book, 2018 book, No Property in Man, attempted to close the debate without much success. In The New York Review of Books, Nicholas Guyot criticized or critiqued his former teacher, Valence, for using history to pursue presentist political grudges against the left. Valence fired back, as Valence tends to do. The debate continued, further prompted by the New York Times 1619 Project, which, among other things, distilled and popularized the argument that the Constitution, and indeed the founding of the nation itself, had been pro-slavery. Valence and four other eminent historians, all of them white, incidentally or not, sent a letter to the Times taking issue with the project's displacement of historical understanding by ideology. This is where Kreitner's just a moron. Most of the people that wrote the 1619 Project are also white. As Phil Magnus has pointed out over and over again. I mean, you really want to go to somebody, go on Twitter and look up Phil Magnus, and he just is brutal on this. I mean, all these little, well, this is by white people. Oh, I mean, in contrast to the white people that wrote the 1619 Project? I mean, it's just stupid. Among the letters signees was James Oakes, a distinguished professor at the SUNY Graduate Center and a celebrated scholar of the history of emancipation. Oakes has spent much of his career analyzing how slavery was central to the antebellum political and economic life, but he's also spent the last decade attempting to show how an anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution helped put an end to human bondage in the United States. He began developing this argument in 2013 with his landmark Freedom National. In it, Oakes sought to refute the long-held contention in Civil War studies that what began as a war to save the Union only later, by sheer necessity, began a war to end slavery. Lincoln and the Republicans, Oakes, Oakes argued, had entered office in 1861 with a concrete plan, plan for abolition and enacted it within weeks of the firing of Fort Sumter. By using powers they discerned in certain clauses of the Constitution, such as the Insurrections Clause, the Republicans, he claimed, hoped to restrict slavery to states where it already existed, a first step in their minds of snuffing it out for good. Well, wait a second here. 
This is also what Lincoln hoped to do with the original 13th Amendment. So you could say, well, he's this is an anti-slavery push, but the 1619 people would say, well, wait a second, he's if he's really anti-slavery, he would have said, we're going to abolish it outright. We're just going to get rid of it. Lincoln also said, well, wait, if you come back in the Union, you can vote down the 13th Amendment. We can talk about prolonging slavery till 1890 or maybe even later. Why did Lincoln support these type of war measures? Well, because he thought it would hurt the Confederacy. He thought it would hurt their ability to prosecute the war. It wasn't because of some altruistic or moral opposition to slavery. It was was a war necessity in his mind. He even said it. And he even said to, famously, uh, to one to a newspaper editor, hey, look, if I could end, if I could uh, save the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would. If I could save it by freeing one slave, I would. If I could save it by freeing no slaves, I would. I mean, this is what he wanted to do. It was all about the Union. So this this is where James Oakes is just his, his arguments are weak, right? Two years later, in a similar follow-up entitled "The Scorpion Sting," Oakes filled in some details on how the Republicans had come to believe that by closing slavery in within with a cordon of freedom. He would be able to achieve his ultimate demise. Like a scorpion surrounded by fire, slavery would sting itself to death. Now with his newest book, The Crooked Path Abolition, Oaks brings his trilogy to a close. If Freedom National focused on the actions Republicans took to end slavery and Scorpion Sting explained how they expected those actions would accomplish their goal, The Crooked Path explores the legal and political justification behind the anti-slavery program. Namely, that the Constitution was in fact an anti-slavery document, contrary to the claims of both slavery's defenders and the noisiest faction of its radical critics. Even if it deprived the federal government of any power to abolish slavery within the southern states, the Constitution provided a number of powerful tools for limiting slavery's spread. While some of this argument is familiar from the earlier books, the crooked path, in the crooked path we get a more detailed and focused emphasis on the Constitution itself. Nowhere does Oakes explicitly draw out the connections between his new book and the larger arguments over how to interpret the trajectory of U.S. history. But so this is this is the point, right? So he's making an argument the Constitution is anti-slavery, that it was, there are mechanisms there to do it, and uh, because of that, we have a situation where we have an anti-slavery document. So Kreitner goes on, he says, the theory that the Constitution anticipated eventual abolition faced a formidable obstacle. Oakes concedes this in what historians have team- termed the federal consensus, the widespread belief shared by friends and foes of bondage that Congress couldn't abolish or even regulate slavery in the states where it already existed. That agreement shaped the politics of slavery from the ratification of the Constitution through the Civil War. Yet Oakes argues anti-slavery politicians worked skillfully and methodically over decades to get around this hindrance in order to push for the abolition of slavery in the United States. More than that, he suggests anti-slavery advocates even found ways to appropriate the apparent limitation for their own purposes. This theory of the Constitution shaped the development and execution of what Oakes terms the anti-slavery project, a decades-long plan to constrict the expansion of slavery, deprive it of oxygen, and ultimately place it on what Lincoln called a course of ultimate extinction. By denying slavery the outright protection of the federal government, banning it not only from the territories but also from the high seas, military installations in Washington, D.C., the anti-slavery movement could ultimately fulfill what its advocates claimed had been the founders' long-delayed aspiration, ending slavery in America entirely. Now, I will say this is the way that the anti-slavery... Now, it's important to say not 
abolitionists, but anti-slavery. So anti-slavery was not abolition. It was simply the opposition to slavery in areas where they could do it. Now, you did have abolitionists, outright abolitionists in that, but you also had people that weren't necessarily that interested in abolishing slavery, but they didn't want to be around it. And so, yes, by working in these areas, and this is what Calhoun pointed out in 1837 in his positive good speech, which I cover in my 26 speeches, he says, look, here's the thing. If we accept these petitions, then what we're saying is the general government has the power to abolish slavery. And he said, I believe it does. Calhoun actually said in 1837, I believe the Congress has the power to abolish slavery. We have the power to pass illegal tariffs. We have the power to pass an illegal bank. Why don't we have the power to pass illegal emancipation legislation? So he's saying either we're going to stop all this illegal nonsense or we're just going to accept it has this power. And if we say we do, it doesn't have this power, then we have to stop reading these petitions right now. And what's also important about that speech, and I get into this, he says, I'm not going to defend slavery in the abstract. He didn't. He never did. Calhoun never defended slavery in the abstract. That's one of the great myths of John C. Calhoun. So we have this compact that said, look, this is the federal consensus. This is what it was. And the abolitionists or the anti-slavery forces were certainly skillful. They were skillful politicians in how they were going to work around the fringes, as Oakes points out. I think this is true in trying to get rid of, of what was going on, the slavery that they didn't like. By 1860, after a relentless succession of public crises and controversies forced the issue to the forefront of national politics, this project had managed to come within striking distance, if not of the, that final hoped-for goal, then of the beginning of the path to get there. With an outspoken opponent of slavery in the White House for the first time, the levers of federal power could be wielded not to buttress the South's peculiar institution, but to undermine it. Eventually, compelled by some irresistible combination of carrots and sticks, the slave states would have no choice but to adopt abolition statutes. Lincoln's election, Republicans and Confederates agreed, was but the first step in bringing slavery down. Uh, so, I mean, certainly this is one argument against Lincoln's election. It was said in the South. They, they talked about it. Southerners did talk about this. It was, it was going to be an issue, they thought. But then you also had Southerners that said, well, look, if we leave the Union, slavery is doomed. It's definitely going to be bottled up. The Constitution, remember, the, the Supreme Court, I should say, remember, it said slavery was legal everywhere. Supreme Court said that. So how was, there's going to be some interesting things happening here when the Supreme Court was on the side of the South, essentially, if that's what this is all about, expansion of slavery. So he gets into this idea that the Constitution was anti-slavery. Um, and Oakes says, the anti that anti-slavery Constitution, Oakes argues, offered three distinct strategies for eroding and ultimately ending slavery during the Civil War. The first was the cordon of freedom, plan that long predated the conflict in which the federal government would restrict slavery to the states where it already existed and push the slave economy to the brink of collapse. The second was military emancipation. With secession, the federal government could liberate enslaved persons as a military necessity and also protect and arm those who had already liberated themselves. Finally, in the wake of the war, a new amendment to the Constitution could be put in place that would end slavery everywhere and at once. Initially, Lincoln had placed much of his faith in the cordon of freedom approach, Banning slavery in the territories would prevent new slave states from being created and weaken slavery in the existing states, which would, as Oakes writes, succumb to increasing economic pressures to abolish slavery on their own. In the secession crisis of early 1861, this was effectively the Republicans' peace proposal. It was intended, as Oakes wrote in Scorpion Sting, to accomplish the abolition of slavery without violence and without war. Uh, but 
what the ultimate thing, and again, this points out, what was the ultimate issue? I mean, basically, Oakes is conceding. The ultimate issue was not the end of slavery. It was the expansion of slavery. It was not slavery itself. It was not a moral argument. It was not any of that. It was the expansion of slavery. And this is why the South rejected the original 13th Amendment. They said, look, we've already got it. We've already got this. The federal constitution already defends us. We don't need an amendment to state what's already true. The issue is the extension, extension of slavery in the territories, and the Supreme Court has ruled on this. And you're violating a Supreme Court decision. This was their position. And with the Crittenden Amendment, there was an idea to have this Crittenden Amendment or the Crittenden Compromise to extend slavery to the territory, through the Pacific, extend the Missouri Compromise line. Republicans wouldn't agree to it. Southerners would have. They would have agreed to it every day. The North was leading to the dissolution of the original Union. But not the Union. I mean, the Union still existed. As politically useful as this vision may have been, however, it seems utopian to the point of being delusional. By the late 1850s, thanks largely to the provision in the same supposedly anti-slavery constitution that granted slave owners extra power on the basis of their human chattel, support for slavery had become deeply entrenched in the federal judiciary, and a crucial pillar of the national, not merely southern economy. It is by no means clear that in the absence of the South secession, Lincoln and the Republicans would have been able to do much damage. And they very well could have lost re-election in 1864, rapidly undoing whatever good their containment policies had done. For Oaks, the fact that the South did secede is proof. If not that the cordon of freedom would have worked, then at least the South thought it would. He sees secession as more of a spectacular miscalculation than a hysterical overreaction to a non-existent threat. That much seems right, yet if the threat wasn't non-existent, neither was it necessarily existential. And this is, again, he gets into some things about slavery. It probably could have extended longer. It could have lasted longer. And uh, there was some discussion. Now, there was some discussion about ending slavery in the South, though. Uh, Kreitner brings out and Oakes brings up that uh, there were some things to try to, to solidify slavery in the South, though. Also, he doesn't bring up that there were also movements to abolish slavery in the South. Kreitner says, throughout Oaks' Emancipation Trilogy, there is an unresolved tension between his reading of Lincoln and the Republicans' constitutionalism, and his insistence that they were accomplished was nonetheless revolutionary. The terms would seem to signify opposites. Constitutionalism, as a basic adherence to traditional limitations on the exercise of sovereign power. Revolutionary, the decisive overthrow of the same. This tension in the trilogy is both frustrating and fruitful. It's enlightening to learn about the intricate textual interpretation that Republicans devised to legitimize their program for slavery's gradual, gradual abolition, but in practice it proved insufficient. Brute force is ultimately necessary to end slavery in America. Now, was it? I mean, this is what happened. I mean, you could say this is a fact because this is exactly what happened. But was it? I mean, Southerners were willing to let slavery be expanded to California in a smaller territory, and maybe it would have, would have ended on its own that way. They were willing to do that. Now, they also wanted to try to expand it into places like Cuba and other places, but they were certainly willing to corn it off to a smaller portion of the West than the North was getting. This was the... I mean, look, Southerners were behind it. When the Committee of 13, when it was... When the Crittenden Compromise was voted down 8-5, to five, it was only done because Jefferson Davis said in order to get any proposal passed, it's going to take both a majority of Republicans and a majority of Democrats. The Republicans had five seats. They wouldn't vote for it. The Democrats would have. 
Uh, and so, I'm sorry, it, uh, it was 7 to 6, excuse me. The Democrats would have, uh, but so they voted against it. So uh, Kreitner says, Lincoln's proclamation freed individual slaves from bondage, but nowhere did it end slavery itself, which could have easily returned after the war. This is true. The president and congressional Republicans soon realized that the only way to ensure slavery died forever was changing the Constitution. Initially resistant, a hesitation Oaks does not explore, Lincoln came to think of an anti-slavery amendment as the king's cure, a comprehensive solution to the issue that had caused the war. It winds the whole thing up, he noted. That expediency, however, has rarely been anticipated in the annals of anti-slavery constitutionalism. Rather, it had been William Lloyd Garrison and his band of anti-political radicals who for decades identified the 1787 Constitution as an insuperable obstacle to abolition and predicted that, the only, that only the rupture of the Union would ring the death knell of slavery. Oaks tries to show that the amendment overturning the federal consensus was itself adopted under the aegis of this consensus since after its passage in Congress, had to be ratified by three-fourths of the, of the states. The federal consensus, Oaks argues, rather than an insuperable obstacle to abolition, was the method by which the 13th Amendment was secured. Yet the inescapable reality is that abolition was finally achieved in something like a constitutional state of emergency, despite the Charter of 1787, not because of it. If this was indeed a king's cure. The patient was strapped to the gurney and had an IV slammed into his arm. To prove his case, Oaks rattles off the states that ratified the amendment quickly, including slave states like Maryland, Louisiana, and Tennessee. They either had never left the Union or were under military rule. Yet the legitimacy of these newly reconstructed legislatures and states under occupation was dubious at best. Very true. When Lincoln wrote to underlings asking them to organize elections for new state constitutional conventions that would, he hoped, abolish slavery, he was writing not to elected officials, but to military officers. This is where Kreitner actually is good. I mean, he points this out. Um, but that said, I mean, I wanted to get into this because there is this book out there. This is a long piece and I could continue. Uh, he concludes by saying, uh, if the cordon of freedom may not have worked and military emancipation proved inadequate and the 13th amendment could be ratified only by pretending that random assortments of unionists represented the legitimacy, legitimately constituted legislatures of their states. then the question has to be asked, what can we ultimately credit anti-slavery constitutionalism for? After the war, a whole new constitution in the form of the Reconstruction Amendments had to be grafted onto the tattered fragments of the old one. The country could not return to its former self. The nation had to be founded all over again. Again, this is true. I mean, I think Kreitner is honest here. And Foner has said it too. Look, Eric Foner has pointed out we have a whole new constitution when the war's over. We have a new union. He agrees with that. This was the radical position. If you say that Lincoln is, a, in the, is the embodiment of the founders, then you don't understand what really happened here. It was an American revolution. It was a French revolution on American shores. He says, even then, it's hardly clear that the amended Constitution really accomplished its intended purpose. Oakes has long been critical of histories that downplay the accomplishment of emancipation and claim that slavery by another name took hold in the South after Reconstruction. What these histories do is help remind us how the absence of slavery doesn't always mean the presence of freedom. After all, the limitations of what the Civil War accomplished can, can be traced directly back to the terms on which it was fought and a lasting peace finally achieved. Lincoln's feints toward colonization of newly freed blacks, even after he had already determined to free every southern slave, and his contention that emancipation was only a means to, to the end of saving the Union, were predicated on the assumption that white supremacy could and should survive the war. Less because Lincoln was never anything but that. See, this is where the left, 
1619 people are actually more prescient about Lincoln. This is Lerone Bennett's that uh, his uh, Lincoln's white dream. I mean, this is where all this comes from. In this sense, the bloodiest act of American history was another dodge, another compromise between despotism and democracy. May this reflected a sober recognition of political realities. A frontier state politician acutely sensitive to the prickliness of white supremacy, Lincoln believed he would have the public's backing to push universal emancipation only if he first paid homage to popular support for racial exclusion. But this is what the North was doing, right? I mean, this, is, this was the dominant position in America, North and South. But these balances and bargains also revealed that behind the slavery question was that of the inclusion of black Americans as free and equal citizens. That fight, alas, continues with the Constitution only occasionally on justice's side. In a 2017 discussion of what he called the new consensus history, especially the histories of slavery and capitalism that later informed the 1619 Project, Oaks derided contemporary scholarship for offering only, quote, a history of politics of hopelessness. More recently, Princeton historian and socialist, I add that, Matthew Karp, has argued in Harper's Magazine against the emphasis in the 1619 Project and other revisionist narratives on centuries-spanning continuities rather than change over time. But wouldn't it have been useful information to have in 1865 that more than a century and a half later, the simple assertion that Black Lives Matter would still be controversial, that sensitivity to white supremacy would still be the marker of an able politician. Where is the hope in that? Where is the hope and the reflection occasioned by Oak's work that slavery could be abolished only once the Constitution had been annulled? Uh, but, I mean, this is an interesting argument. I think, again, this is this is one of the trends of Civil War historiography. It's one of the trends. I mean, look, Carp uh, is a radical leftist. Kreitner is also a radical leftist. These people, uh, I think, believe more in the pro-slavery side, the garrison side, than the Oaks side. But oh, James Oaks is a formidable uh, man when you're dealing with this history, I think that he's wrong about some things. And I think he's wrong about the initial thrust of the war. But you have this out there and you have Douglas and you have Spooner and you have these things. But this is all based on the proposition nation. All of this, if you read this, if you read this piece, if you read Oaks, if you read all of this, it's all based on Lincoln's position that we have a proposition nation. That was the key. That was the key. So I wanted to cover this again. Kreitner in his book, Break It Up. You should get that book. It's it's good, right? It's it's uh, there's parts of it I don't agree with, but it's it's at least a nice discussion of current events and how that the history of secession how that factors into things. Uh, it's very interesting. And this piece also on historiography and the anti-slavery versus pro-slavery Constitution debate. I would say it was neutral. In fact, I think that's this is the federal consensus. I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's never pro-slavery or anti-slavery. Those that were working on the anti-slavery side were doing things that were a little bit, I mean, you could you could argue, I mean, definitely, that many of them were unconstitutional. You could argue they were constitutional. If you look at the powers of the central government, the municipal powers of the central government, this is where you get into that argument. But regardless, we're still talking about this in 2021 because it forms our understanding of America. Are we, do we have a proposition nation or do we not? Was the Constitution part of this proposition nation ideology where we have, you know, the Constitution was put there as anti-slavery or was it just basically a federal republic, which is what it did? Did it leave all these questions to the states? Yes. 
This is the real argument behind all of this. If we got that out of the way, if we just got out of the way that we don't have a proposition nation and we have a federal republic, all this goes away because all these things then become, well, all these people were basically basing everything they were doing on illegal things, right? That's that's the point. Not that we uh, wouldn't say that ending slavery was a beneficial thing, but the way that we frame the debate should be that we had people doing illegal things. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>